I'm Cody Commerce, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. For many of us, there are moments of realization we've had where we can't look at our lives or what we do in them the same way ever again. I've had many. As a cognitive scientist, one of those moments came from the realization that cognitive science and psychology and neuroscience don't tell us anything about individual human lives. They tell us about humans on average. The problem is that no one lives life on average. They live a specific one. We often hear about studies making claims like this is how people misjudge political opponents or this is how people respond to the suffering of others. Framed this way, it sounds like the scientists got people to line up presented them with the task at hand, and they all more or less reacted to it in the same way described by the headline. But that's not the case, not even close. Those findings are statistical averages. Either the participants did what's being described a little bit, not so much you'd notice it in the individual, but you can find this slight trend among many people, or a handful of the participants did what's being described enough to drown out the effect of whatever everyone else is doing. Think of it this way. If I say people, on average, are going north, then one way to support that finding is to have 50% of people go northeast and 50% of people go northwest. On average, that's what people are doing, but it's not representative of the behavior of any single individual. Another way to think about this is to ask who really takes the experience of individuals seriously, and the answer is novelists. Those are the people who are asking questions about what would happen if we follow the consequences of one particular person's decisions really closely over the course of some significant portion of their life. Think about all the detail that's included in even the simplest novel. In any given instance, a psychology or neuroscience experiment can only examine the smallest sliver of that. As a consequence, we've been taught to think of the brain, the mind, behavior, intelligence, all these things as a kind of monolith. There is the platonic mind with an IQ of 500, and one day artificial intelligence will realize that kind of perfection. But in the meantime, we're stuck here living our lives as imperfect approximations of that ideal. As it turns out, that's just not the case. And one of the ways we know that's not the case is through the neuroscientific work of people like my guest today, Chantelle Pratt. Chantelle is a professor of psychology at the University of Washington. She was one of the first guests I had on this podcast, and it remains one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. In that conversation, we talked about Chantelle's incredibly powerful story with an unplanned pregnancy in grad school that changed her life for the better. The occasion for this episode is that she recently published a book based on the work of her and her peers called The Neuroscience of You. In it, she makes a really important argument. We've been taught to think of there being one canonical brain, one wiring diagram, one set of processes known as the human mind. But there's not, just like there's not one human genome. While in aggregate, we can look at commonalities across our species, each of us has a unique genetic fingerprint. The brain works in the same way. The big implication here is that all too often we look at our own behavior and wonder why we're not more like someone else. Why can't we be as good or as focused or as kind or as competent? It's easy to overlook the simplest answer. We're just different. Chantel's work shows us that these differences are fundamental, not in a way that's unbridgeable or keeps us apart, but in a way that shows we have to appreciate others and ourselves for the specific things that make us us. Chantel's book is The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. It's out now. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. 
That's the main feed for my content, where I publish both my weekly podcasts and a weekly essay. Subscribing to that is the single biggest way you can support the show. You can find the feed at themeaninglab.com. That's themeaninglab.com. And if you're listening on Spotify, please consider giving the Meaning Lab podcast a five-star rating. It takes four seconds or less. If you're on the Meaning Lab homepage where it shows the logo and says follow or following, click the three dots. Then it'll say rate show, select the fifth star, and press submit. That's it. And it helps a ton in growing the show's audience on that platform. You can also click the follow button to subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks for listening. And without any further ado, here is Chantel Pratt. And so I guess the kind of place that I, I want to start off with is that I think for someone who hasn't studied neuroscience, or even maybe for someone who has, but hasn't necessarily thought about like the individual differences angle of it. Um, it might be kind of scandalizing to discover just how little we know about individual differences in the brain uh, and just how much neuroscience is focused on other stuff besides that. So I was wondering if you could start off by sketching out a little bit of the backstory behind what neuroscientists typically do instead and how our perspective might begin to change as we further develop what you might think of as like a true neuroscience of the individual. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great place to start. And I will try and keep it as accessible as possible because there are all these different levels at which you can you can talk about that. But something popped into my mind. And I remember one of my colleagues who doesn't study individual differences saying at some point, I study individual differences. And I was like, really? And they said, yeah, I just call it the standard error of the mean. And what that really means is it's a, a statistical term to talk about how the people in your group vary. But the thing is that we treat that as noise. You know, we're, we're, we, not myself, but the field is really looking for what holds true when you disregard or treat individual differences as noise. And that was really striking to me. So the first thing I'll say is that I went into this field with a desire to understand the mind and brain relationship at the level of the individual. So like I started out pre-med, you know this about me. Uh, and I had this class where I learned about Phineas Gage, who was this railway worker who suffered a brain injury that changed his personality fundamentally. And in these really interesting ways. And I, you know, I just had this aha moment, like, ninth inning of my pre-med career where I was like, oh my gosh, you know, we have all these organs and they have all these jobs, but the brain is the organ that makes you, you. And if you change the brain, you change the person. And, you know, so for me, I really always wanted to understand this space. Like how does a person's brain make them them? Not how do brains work on average, but how do these little perturbations that people call noise when they're studying brains actually scale up to produce the things that you identify with as your unique self. So I was really shocked by, by the way neuroscience treats this like, oh, that's irrelevant. You know, the field kind of talked about these things as, oh, they might be interesting, but they're irrelevant when you're trying to understand how brains work. And I'm like, hmm, you know, that seems inconsistent with my worldview and my sense of self, the way I perceive myself as working differently from other people. 
And it turns out that this is just a paradigm. At the end of the day, the way neuroscience has worked, the kind of maps that you see in the books on the shelf about how brains work, take the following approach. You get a group, not even a large group, say 25 to 30 individuals. And these aren't even individuals that represent people in the real world, right? These are like the average person in a neuroscience study is a right-handed, monolingual, English-speaking college undergraduate, like not very representative. We put this group in the scanner or in some kind of a, you know, experiment where we're recording brain activity. And we have them do two different things. So I study language. I might have them read sentences that are syntactically complex or simple. I might have them read a sentence in their first or second language. I might have them read stories that invite inferences or are very literal. And then we average what each brain in that group is doing and focus on how the group does the two different tasks differently. But anyone who's looking at the individual brains that go into those tasks knows that there are often way bigger differences when two different people do the same task than when a group of people that have been statistically averaged do two different tasks. And it's always been really clear to me that if your theory about the relationship between mind and brain can't account for both things. Not only like when you take the average brain and you put it into a scanner and you predict how it will perform when you give it different jobs, but how two different brains will perform differently when they perform the same job. If your theory can't account for that, then you really don't have a good understanding of the relationship between the mind and the brain. And and this is just, I mean, I understand all of the reasons that that research is more complicated. It requires more participants on average. It, you know, individual differences blow up the complexity space of understanding brains. But like, how can we just stop and say we know how brains work when we've treated differences between people as statistical error or noise? You know, that that just wasn't going to be the deal for me. Right. So let me um, let me summarize some of the stuff that you touched on there and in some of the ways, I guess, that it occurred to me to think about it while I was reading your, your book. The benefit of why of the sort of standard practice of neuroscience of looking at aggregates is that you get to generalize and you get to say, OK, here is a fairly simple, fairly straightforward. And of course, we're talking about the brain, so it's not at all simple, not at all straightforward. But uh, in the context of the brain, simple and straightforward explanation for what is happening and on average, it pretty well explains what is going on in people's head while they're doing whatever task we're interested in. Um, but the problem with that is that because you're looking at the aggregate, which is, you know, uh, whatever this sort of average behavior it is, it's entirely possible in the worst case scenario, but also, you know, like I said, very possible scenario, that what you're describing is the average behavior does not actually exist in any one individual. And so you're creating this picture of either behavior or what's going on in the brain that might describe this kind of typical response in a way that doesn't actually represent what any one individual does. Um, and so you are actually missing out on, uh, by trying to get the whole picture of how the brain works, 
you're actually completely missing the story of how any one individual brain works. And at the end of the day, brains exist as individual humans. They are not statistical abstractions. They are these individual things that people have that, that motivate them and, and sort of are the, the architects of, of, our, of our behavior. And so if we're missing out on being able to describe them as individuals, like you said, that's a totally incomplete theory of brain and behavior, right? Yes. I couldn't have said it better myself. And and I think that, you know, in certain cases, so just to amp up the implications of this a little bit, in certain cases, like what happens is if there are two ways of accomplishing a task that are fundamentally different and people are like, oh, I'm, you know, maybe I'm understanding this passage by building the brick, like, you know, going from the bottom up, building the bricks and, you know, understanding the structure from the bricks, or maybe I'm understanding this passage contextually. I'm taking the big picture and I'm kind of reverse engineering it, reverse engineering it, taking the structure and going down to figure out what brick is coming next. If people have two fundamentally different ways of doing things and we average those, as you as you mentioned, the way we think brains work might not actually be the way brains work at all. It might just be blurring two different things together. It's like taking a room full of red and blue people and saying people are purple. And and that happens. So that's one, you know, one of the things that I learned with my dissertation when it comes to how the two hemispheres are involved in reading and building sort of the mental representation of a story. I found that our our understanding of how this works based on group data was not true in any one individual in the study. But another kind of bigger picture thing is that, you know, over 150 years of studying commonalities between people, which I agree is a great place to start. We've learned a lot about lower level sensory processing. Like we've learned a lot about visual systems and and auditory systems and how our brains make sense of the physical energy in the world out there. Because these parts of the brain are experience expectant. They're hardwired, you know, they're linked to our sensory input systems. And so they get set up more or less the same. There are interesting individual differences there as well. But as you move up to more um, to areas of the brain that are, you know, open to experience, that are more plastic, that change with different environments and that are more abstract, we know less and less about how these things really work because we haven't focused on individual differences. And we also have problems with failures to replicate, so forth and so on, because if you have a group of 20 people and you're looking at commonalities and then you get 20 more people and you're looking at commonalities, you know, you might find a different answer. You might have more more blue people in the second study than the first study, and then you might come up with a different result. And so it's not that I think everybody should be studying individual differences. It's just that if you don't appreciate the ways that people in that sample differ, you don't really understand how your theory can apply to how the brain works, really, in the individuals that you're trying to educate, parent, or operate on. You know, it's like we need to understand that space. So at the risk of continuing to, uh, you know, go down this path of, of trying to to say just like how egregious it is that people haven't paid in, uh, as much attention to individual differences. I also think that the concept that 
what a general theory of, of brain or behavior would look like is this kind of lowest common denominator, what everything, what everyone has in common. That's totally nuts. Like that is the most, uh, by trying to describe what everyone has in common, you're describing essentially nothing interesting. Like all the interesting things about humans, you're leaving so much of it on the table. And one of the ways that I think about this is I think about this a lot in conversation. So conversations between people almost always exist at the lowest common denominator of, uh, of interests of, of overlapping, you know, whatever, whatever you have in common. And so when you have two people and you're talking, the number of things that you have in common is very large and it might take you a while to figure out what all those are, but there are a lot of things that you can go down and actually find out that you have a lot in common on. Once you get to three people, that number goes down dramatically. By the time you get to four or five people, basically the only thing you have in common is like the weather and maybe the fact that like you've all been to like Spain or something like that. Uh, that you've all eaten food from several, you know, different nations. And so I think, you know, like we overestimate the extent to which uh, the generalities between us can actually explain any of the meaningful stuff that we care about at all, Um, which maybe oversteps a little bit uh, past what what, what, what the point you're making and everything, but I think is worth pointing out up front uh, nonetheless. I think that's that's an excellent point. And I never really thought about it like that, but I, of course, it's true. The sort of points of convergence, you know, diminish as you get more and more people. And, and you know, on the flip side, I think that there's something really um, powerful and beautiful about reading a story or reading a book. And, you know, there might be something that you think is really weird, unique, or particular about yourself. And then someone goes, oh, no people work like that. Like everyone's like that, or, you know, this is, or at least like many people have a hard time remembering proper names or, you know, like so many people say, I have a hardest time mapping a name with a face. Like this is really common because those are two abstract pieces of information that you have to bind together. So I think that there's something, you know, really powerful when you do find those points of convergence. However, I think one of the downfalls is that when we have this this sort of uh, least common denominator as you put it as our view of how brains work we also start to dramatically oversimplify what it means to be normal we think that normal is a single value and not this really multi-dimensional space and I also think that what happens is that normal gets conflated with the idea of ideal And now it's like, if you're deviating from this idea of a single point of normal, that's driven by a really non-representative sample and only looking at common denominators, and then you think there's something wrong with you. So it's like, I think what people don't, what people need to understand and appreciate is we can't even define abnormal or atypical without having a sophisticated understanding of how people differ and what it means to be different in that quote unquote normal space. There's a ton that I want to uh, touch on in that. And I jotted down some, some notes of things to come back to later, but there's um, this little bit of an aside that I want to take. Um, 
And it has to do with one of my favorite psychologists of all time, uh, Gordon Alpert. And he was the founder of the uh, fields of both social and personality psychology to a large extent. And the things that we're describing here were actually a huge issue to him, which I think is really interesting that this was a, a big part of the founding of what 20th century psychology became. And so he described these as the ideographic versus nomothetic approaches, which some people still use that uh, today, depending on depending on uh, who you hang out with. Uh, but with the, the ideographic telling us something specific about individuals and the nomothetic telling us something general about aggregates. And, you know, as we've sort of been talking about for psychologists and neuroscientists, you know, the, the most effective, the most interesting, whatever, the kind of thing that they're going for is, is something about the, the nomothetic aspect, how minds work in general. Um, and the, the, the problem that Gordon Alpert came up against was uh, that he could, he felt like he could make a lot of progress on that front as all of psychology and neuroscience has, but he spent his entire career figuring out how to try and develop the ideographic approach and literally never got any traction on it. Um, he, tr uh, basically he was interested in studying life histories. And so he has this book called letters from Jenny, which was one of the last things he published before, um, his, his death. And basically it was this collection of correspondence, personal correspondence from this woman named Jenny and her detailing this kind of very, literary but also naive as in like she wasn't trying to perform something she was just describing her life and it like was a very effective description but not one that's kind of like literary or performative or whatever um and so he basically spent years like 20 years teaching these letters in his classes as um you know kind of like here's if we can do some sort of kind of like psychoanalysis of this and maybe we can figure out how to tell a life history a life story of an individual and when you read this book and you get to the conclusion uh, the conclusion is kind of this like sad apology for having even for have like having the audacity to have even like tried this project. And he kind of taught, like just tosses his hands up saying, look, I've been teaching these letters for like 20 years in my classes and I'm no closer to understanding how to leverage them as scientific objects of interest as, you know, as I was at the beginning. And so I think it's, it's interesting how I, I take that as an interesting kind of just note on how that was recognized in important junctures in the field in particular of psychology in this case and how it's, genuinely been a very difficult scientific question, even when people were interested in it. Yeah, that's so, I'm totally going to read that. Uh, and it's true. And, you know, in the book I talk about, like, I'm not going to stay on this individual differences high horse because I know as, as well as anybody, why it's really hard to do. And that's really clear from a scientific perspective is that the individual differences that we're interested in are things that your participants walk in the door with, whether it's language background, cultural background, um, or their typical way of paying attention in the face of distraction. Like this is something that's true about them. Doesn't necessarily mean that they they were born that way, but in that moment, their brain is working in this way or has been affected by these things. And we have no control over it, right? So as a scientist, we want to be able to manipulate things and measure the effects of these things. And instead, when you're studying individual differences, these people have been walking around with these things for a various amount of time, depending on what it is you're interested in. 
And they've been having systematically different experiences, likely because of these things, right? So on the one hand, we don't have any control. We can't randomly assign the vast majority of the things that are cool and interesting. And because of this, you know, you, when we were chatting earlier about my podcast experiences, you said correlation doesn't equal causation. And that's always true, but we almost always have to deal with some form of a correlation when we're doing an individual differences study. And when that, when we find relationships between the way a person is and the way their brain works, it's really hard to figure out why that is and to make sure that there aren't other confounds that are related to this person's experiences and there and there almost always will be right so when you start to study individual differences this the complexity space expands dramatically and then you also have to think about measurement so you know i'm imagining trying to quantify or describe in a meaningful way of someone's lifetime and and understanding how humbling that is because I'm looking oftentimes at this a snapshot of an individual and a snapshot of the way that people differ. And I'm keenly aware that there's a lifetime of experiences that are behind that moment that they're in right now. And how many different variables might be, you know, so when we bring people into the lab, you know, our typical experiments right now, we bring people into the lab and we probably test them. We we probably bring them in three different times, three to four different times in which we measure, we take many different measures of brain activity, both when they're doing a task and when they're at rest, we give them a lot of questionnaires about their language experience, their experience with programming or whatever it is we're doing, education, SES. And then we do a whole bunch of measures of current skill levels, you know, have them read, have them do three or four different memory tasks, have them do three or four different attentional tasks. And we try across maybe four to six hours to get a picture of the person. And then we systematically expose them to some experience. We might be uh, exposing them to a natural language or computer programming language or something like that. And over 10 weeks, we try and get some, or four weeks or whatever, you know, longitudinally, we try and get some measure of how they function in a particular learning environment. I've been doing this now for maybe nine or 10 years with the Navy. And the question then becomes, what do I do with this data? You know, I mean, I still think that I'm doing the best I can in this complexity space, but figuring out the right way to use that information to make a model of a person and then to understand how that person moves through the environment is incredibly, incredibly scientifically complicated. And I still don't think we've, we've figured out the best way to do it. And this is just like how people learn languages, right? Like this isn't like, how does a person find the career that fulfills them or find, you know, or enter into meaningful relationships or the things that we really want to know about how people work. I mean, I really want to know how they learn languages, but, but your, your example is like, you know, it's completely relatable to me because I understand I'm like a person is not a single variable. They never are. 
how many variables are they? You know, it's like, or how many variables does it take to characterize their brains? And the number is always more than one, but I don't think it's like a million. I think there's a cloud space there where we can get some traction on, you know, at least if we say this is the environment that we're interested in, or this is the phenomenon that we're interested in, I think we can start to come up with some multidimensional space that helps us to understand a person better. That's like, I don't know, maybe fewer than a hundred variables. I don't know. I'm making that up, but it's, it's definitely hard. We're not going to recreate a person. If we're recreating a person, we don't have a model. We just have the person, right? That doesn't actually help our science, but you know, what your story tells me or reminds me is that there's a difference between deciding something is important and being able to do it. But if we don't acknowledge that it's important, then people won't start working on it. And I think we have new tools, a new emphasis in big data. There's more publicly available data out there. And I think we can at least move in that direction once we acknowledge that, hey, this you know least common denominator way of doing things is not the end. We're not done. We need to we need to get into this a little deeper. Hey, Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another one minute and 30 seconds if you just want to skip through it. If you have not already, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, I promise you will like the rest of my work and the Substack newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find, which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me, and I really appreciate it, like a lot. But even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work. The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future. More people on there also means I get more feedback and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday. If you subscribe to the Substack newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. Was there a particular chapter that you maybe learned the most from or found most surprising or 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 anything like that? I really like the the last chapter. It it I I move around. Um the last chapter is connect and um what I found the most surprising is that theory of mind or our ability to form a mental model of the way someone else works, this sort of more effortful way of understanding someone who works differently seems to be entirely learned. I don't think I've ever seen a behavioral genetic study that didn't show that some usually like ridiculously large percentage of the thing that you're interested in studying what's related to genetics. But in this study where they studied, I don't know, a thousand or so 
uh, sets of five-year-old twins, they showed that this ability to model the minds of others was exactly the same. The similarities between uh, monozygotic and dizygotic or uh, identical and fraternal twins in this ability was exactly the same. Like the correlation was the same to the um, second decimal point. And I read a bunch about the relationship between language and the way parents talk about feelings and the minds of others um, that, that shows that this is something that we can learn and that maybe is exclusively learned. And that really, you know, again, this is like now we're in the ninth inning of my book. And my whole point in this book was to highlight the difference between our subjective reality and our objective reality and talk about how different brains build different realities. And so we got to this ninth inning inning, and I thought, well, this gives me hope that I can, that people will, will obtain some tools when they read this book that will allow them to understand someone who works differently. And now whether they'll be motivated to do that is a whole different story, but at least we know that this thing can be taught and seems to be entirely taught. And that was really eye-opening for me. Yes, this was something I really wanted to talk about because, um, again, it's kind of following another aside here, but this is actually one of the things that I really wanted to get purchase on my own PhD research that I could never really quite figure out how to approach. And it has to do with what you were talking about with um, the sense of putting an effort to understand the differences, uh, the way different people from ourselves work, right? And um, there's this sort of standard framework in psychology, uh, which we call the intuitive psychologist. And it goes back to this 1977 paper by Lee Ross, one of the great social psychologists of the, uh, and cognitive psychologists, I guess, of the, of the 20th century and uh, passed away, I think, quite recently. Um, but anyway, the, the basic premise here is that when we, as normal humans, try and understand the minds of those around us, we're basically doing this informal version of what professional academic psychologists do formally. And that is, you know, us acting as intuitive psychologists. Okay. Uh, so that's the sort of central framework for theory of mind uh, that, that we, we talk about how we make sense of other people's behavior in, in psychology. And okay, let's take that metaphor seriously. Let's say we are intuitive psychologists. What have psychologists always been bad at? Well, it's what we've been talking about with individual differences, basically. We bring in 25 uh, white, fairly affluent, uh, you know, uh, probably more than 50% male undergraduates into the lab. We run some tests on them. And then we say, okay, well, here's approximately how people work. Um, and so we've sort of had this in-group bias baked into psychology from very, very early on where we are trying to understand, in a sense, the dynamics of this one particular type of person, this one particular type of social group, which we now call weird, you know, Western, educated, industrialized, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, okay, who are the people then that have done the most work trying to understand people who are different from oneself? Uh, the answer to that is pretty clear. It's not psychologists. It is anthropologists. Uh, and so I was really fascinated with this idea of intuitive anthropology, that maybe what it means to understand someone, particularly someone from a different social group, someone who's vastly different than oneself for, for whatever reason, um, 
looks less like doing psychology, whatever you know people do in psychology departments, and more like anthropology. Basically, the people who were like, hey, I want to go find people who are like as different from me as possible and then figure out how most effectively to make sense of the way they live and the way they see things and, and that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of it comes down to effort. Psychology is all about inference and sort of being sophisticated and like, well, if I set this up, then I can infer causality from this and, you know, like all that sort of stuff. And anthropologists are sort of like, yo, if I plant my ass in the uh, back in the day, it was a village. Now it's not really a village, but you know, if I plant my ass, like with the people here for, you know, six months, learn the language, have breakfast with them every day, that sort of stuff, then I'll be a lot closer to understanding what they're all about than, you know, uh, whatever. So it's not about sophisticated inference. It's about purely, do you care enough about this other kind of thing that you're interested in, uh, uh to get into that? And I never quite found a way to get traction with that idea, but I think it's something that's very overlooked in, in psychology and have been very interested in for, for a while now. I love that because, well, there's something else in that anthropological paradigm, and that is exposure and experience. Like I'm immersed in it. I'm gathering data about the way this culture works and you know, and, and usually, hopefully in the best of circumstances, you're also in a place where whether it's because they trust you because of your academic credentials or whether these people have agreed to participate in being studied and wanting to be understood. I think that, um, what, one of the things that we're missing when we have this intuitive psychology and we try and understand someone else is establishing a trusting relationship where you can get feedback explicit feedback when you make an inference about how somebody works that's wrong and we do that because we don't have enough data about that particular person right like when we don't have enough data i think well we this means a lot of different things but when we don't have enough experience with a particular individual what do we do we tend to rely on shortcuts about other people you know based on data we have about other people that share some feature of this person, whether that's gender or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to assume that because this person lives in Seattle, they, I don't know, love grunge music or wear flannels every day, or, you know, like it could be the, the location on the planet, the, the gender of the person, the age of the person, race of the person. It could be that I'm in a psychology class and I assume this person is interested in the same things I am. It's like when we don't have enough data, our brains do the same things they do in all of the other cases. They generalize and they make assumptions. And then when we don't have relationships, we don't always get feedback, right? So we don't get like, oh no, that was wrong. Like this person lives in, in Seattle, but they're allergic to flannel or, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's like, and so I think that just being aware that you know, you talked about being motivated to do the work. And I think there's something really, really important there too. Um, but being aware that you need experience and you need feedback because again, I think just because you, even if you have a lot of data and you can predict how a person will behave, you're still not necessarily right about why. If you don't have a relationship and you don't have conversation, you might assume that a person is behaving the way they're behaving based on your own experiences and the way your brain works. So having experiences and having relationships where you can get feedback is really important. 
And then about that motivation thing, it's like, I feel that we are living through this social paradox because people are talking more and more and more about diversity, equity, inclusion, which shows that more people are aware or, or are acknowledging that having different perspectives, having individuals with different backgrounds in our decision-making spaces is valuable to everyone. I think there's an increasing awareness around this, but I don't necessarily think we're getting better at understanding people who work truly differently, like talking through our disagreements. And so you have to ask the question, are you willing to not only invite others to the table, but to consider that your idea of what's right or what's the ideal way of being is still based on your own limited experiences with people who work like you, right? So it's like, we want people with different perspectives, but we kind of don't because we still have this gut feeling that people who work like us are doing things correctly. And I think we're going to have to understand really what perspective means and, and ask ourselves like, not only, oh, I want, you know, yes, I think that, you know, we should have a lot of different people with different backgrounds in our decision-making spaces, but instead think of someone who you don't like or who behaves differently from you in a way that you find easy to judge. Would you be willing to put in the work it would take to figure out where that person might come from, what kind of environment their brain has adapted to? You know, it's, it's like a whole different ball of wax when you think about somebody you disagree with that you already know that you don't sort of vibe with, would you be willing to put in the work to figure out how they work? It's not the same thing as agreeing with them. It's not the same thing as saying that the way they behave is okay, especially if it's harmful to others. But like, it takes work. It's harder to form a model of someone who works differently from you. Are you willing to put in that work? And to tie this back into something you said earlier, you kind of, you know, alluded to this in the fullness of time for the neuroscience of individual differences. You would have this multidimensional space of being able to sort of pinpoint, you know, the relevant dimensions of a, of a person's mind. And maybe, you know, there's like a hundred dimensions or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever this thing is. It's not some huge, huge, huge number, um, but, you know, it's some, some sort of thing. And the reason why it's more effort is because, well, if you imagine two points in a very simple two-dimensional space, uh, the longer the distance is, the more effort it would essentially take to walk that distance, you know, like that sort of thing. It's the same thing as if you have two points, you know, uh, on, on a map or whatever. If you're walking that distance physically, if you have to walk that distance mentally to, to uh, you know, get to the other person's way of, of working through things, which, as you said, is a separate evaluation from the moral valence of, of their conclusions and whether they're, they're right or wrong, but at the very least understanding the way they see things. Yeah, the further that the, those dots are apart, the, the, lo- the further you're going to have to walk, the more effort it takes. I think that's a big part of the reason. Yeah. And then going back to your metaphor of like finding common ground, though, the more dimensions we consider, the more likely there is to be some dimension where we have overlap, right? And maybe that's the place that we start to connect through. It's like, I think it's too easy to reduce somebody to the dimension that is the most different 
and then say, oh, this person doesn't work like me at all. And going back to this individual differences space and the stories of humanity, I mean, I do think that there are common themes in all of our stories, you know, search for belongingness and among them. And that's ironic because it's it's the search for who identity and belongingness and sort of, you know, understanding yourself both as a function of how you're the same and how you're different from the people around you that seem, we seem to in that space, the differences seem to be the thing that drives dissension, right? Uh, Or they seem to be the things that take on our, our biggest, our most salient opinions about one another. Maybe not. Maybe that's a, a fundamental way that people differ too. Maybe some are more drawn to the similarities and others are more, captivated by the differences. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. So, okay. Um, uh, coming back a little bit more uh, directly to the book, perhaps the, I guess, you know, maybe you disagree, but I think uh, probably the central argument of the book is that there's no such thing as a brain that's better or worse. And to this, you kind of make two counter uh, proposals. Uh, one is that there's a role for different brains in different contexts. And uh, you can't just say objectively, this is good and this is bad, because, well, it depends on what the purpose of the, the, the brain is for. And there's lots of different ways that the brains can be useful. And so that context really, really matters and it makes different things uh, 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 you know, more quote unquote useful or better than, than, than something else. And the second thing is that, you know, everything is about cost, uh, benefit trade-offs. So, um, I guess I'm interested to hear, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your own brain's cost and benefit trade-offs and the context in which you think your brain has, you know, uh, both positive and negatives. I, I know you, you, you mentioned it a little bit throughout the book and you talk about, um, extroversion and that sort of stuff, but I'd love to hear you just sort of go in, uh, to your own kind of, uh, neuroscience of, uh, of you. The neuroscience of me. Yes. Me neuro- <laughs> yes. Well, that I, was that. happening, obviously that was yeah. happening a lot when I was writing the book and, you know, I'm not sure that there aren't any spaces that we can't say, oh, this is like objectively better. But I think that what happens is when you think about, you know, the fact that we have had homo sapien brains for hundreds of thousands of years and vertebrate brains for hundreds of millions of years. I think that our visions of what is good and bad are based on this really narrow set of circumstances. When you consider all of the problems that our brains have to solve to keep us alive. And so like, myself, like I've always been, you know, I started out studying working memory and trying to figure out why in the hell can my brain with 86 billion give or take neurons not do two things at the same time? Well, like why did we have this engineering design, you know, and so many people ask me about multitasking or about goal-directed attention. And, you know, I think that uh, both my husband and I, you know, we're very high functioning and all of these things happen on a spectrum, but we're highly distractible, like definitely close to the ADHD spectrum. He even has the fidgety, all of that stuff, the the hyperactivity. I I don't. Um, And while 
you know, so as a kid, I was really fast. I would blow through my tests. I would do well. If I didn't get a hundred percent, it might be because I missed an entire page, <laughs> like, you know, like flipping, you know, and I really just wanted to be done with this stupid, like, I don't know, memorizing your multiplications table or something. I was like, this is so boring. I hate it. And I, you know, I'd either get like an A plus or a C because I forgot that the test had two sides or something like that. Um, so it, we find it frustrating and we want to, we want our brains to be different, particularly because now many of us function in these worlds where we need to sit in front of a computer for eight hours or 12 hours and get stuff done. But, and it's funny because one of the divide, uh, one of the things that people talk about the most in my book is the copious amount of footnotes. And I have to say that there are probably probably 30% of the footnotes that exist in the in the published version have been cut and I probably cut another 50% of them when I read the audiobook because I was like I don't want to read that that was just for me you know so I think part of the way that I um compartmentalized or like as I was writing and I was having all these distracting thoughts I would put them in the footnotes and then sometimes they would be elevated to the text and sometimes they would be cut altogether but some people really love the footnotes and find them kind of enriching or a little fun departure from whatever's going on in the book and I think this is just one example of how our the way that our brains work the reason that we have these bottlenecks in attention is because the is because it's a direct um cost or result consequence of the flexibility of the human brain so uh earl miller earl miller has a really good several really good papers about working memory where he he basically says that all of the neurons in our frontal lobe don't have a single job Instead, they can be reconfigured in a bazillion different ways. And you can quote me on that quantitative um, number. They can be reconfigured in a bazillion different ways to allow the human brain to reprogram itself on the fly and do a lot of different things. So if I told you, like, every time I say the word bazillion, you should do jazz hands, you can do that, even though there's nothing in your evolutionary makeup that says that's a great idea or even in your sort of good judgment that says that's a good idea. I can tell you that and you can do that because human brains can use instruction to reprogram themselves on the fly. And if you're doing jazz hands, when I say bazillion, that's probably using about 25 to 35% of your frontal lobe. These neurons that don't have the particular job to recognize the word bazillion and make you execute the action of jazz hands can be configured in a way that'll let you do that. But the, if I ask you to do something else, the likelihood that those are going to use, you know, non-overlapping populations of neurons is not very high because you need a lot of them to be able to do these flexible things. So we can't do two or three controlled actions at once, specifically because we can do jazz hands when Chantel says bazillions. It's this ability to behave flexibly according to instructions that 
causes us to have this bottleneck that we can't hold multiple instructions in mind at any given time. And that's fascinating. It's marvelous. It's like, if we didn't have that, we could, maybe we could be like an octopus and, and have like eight things going on at once that are largely independent. And that would be really cool. But I don't know that an octopus can reconfigure any of his arm, you know, any of his tentacles on the fly. I don't think they have that kind of capability. So there are these costs and benefits. You also mentioned extroversion. I think that's a really, um, that was an interesting adventure for me as well. So I'm, you know, pretty high on the extrovert uh, scale. And what I learned about extroverts is that our brains respond extra strongly when we find an unexpected positive thing in the world. And by respond strongly, what I mean is with a dopamine or a pleasure response. So extroverts are more sensitive than introverts to unexpected surprises, good things. Um, This means essentially, let's say you and I have the same, let's just say for the sake of argument that you and I have the same feelings about a granola bar. And I know that granola bars, some are good and some are not, but let's just say that we have the same scale of reward for a granola bar or a vanilla ice cream cone. If an introvert and an extrovert come upon a granola bar in their in their unexpected wanderings of the world, the extrovert's brain is going to respond like almost like it's a vanilla ice cream cone. They're going to get a stronger response than the introvert, which which creates this rewiring in the brain, a learning, a strengthening of the series of activities that led you to find that granola bar in the first place, which you could imagine leads extroverts to leave the house more, right? Like most of the times we find unexpected things. It's not in our controlled environments, but out there in the world. Introverts and extroverts, to the best of my knowledge, have not, we have not shown that they respond differently to unexpected disappointments. So if you imagine that in any decision space, you're trying to weigh the costs and benefits the extroverts are going to be like, hmm, well, I might get, I might find a granola bar. That would be so cool. You know, the introvert's like, but you know, you might also get like embarrassed or, you know, et cetera. And, and when it comes to you think, okay, extroverts actually do report higher um, levels of happiness and life fulfillment, which makes sense. If you think about the fact that every time they find a granola bar, they're super stoked. Uh, However, and so you think, okay, this is clearly the best way to be. However, the genetic profile that makes extroverts hypersensitive to these unexpected rewards is also correlated with a lot of addictive behaviors from obesity to drug addiction. Um, When you find yourself in a situation where there's something that could be rewarding right in front of you. But that thing is either not good for you or you can, you know, turn it down for a choice for a delayed gratification, for instance. It's much easier for an introvert to say no to a granola bar than it is for an extrovert who perceives that granola bar like a vanilla ice cream cone. So and also our work has shown that um, people with the genetic profile associated with introversion, which is this this profile that's sensitive to um, sensitive to when things are not going as well as you expect. 
Um, this isn't mapped perfectly onto extroversion, but it maps perfectly onto our reward pathways. Um, these people are also have some advantage in problem solving because they're more likely to notice when the strategies that you're they're using to solve a problem aren't working out. They're less sort of susceptible to, oh, it's sort of, I'm doing something, it's it, I'm grinding it out. It's like getting me a little bit closer. They're, they're more likely to say, hmm, this isn't really working and try a different strategy, which has translation to more effective problem solving. That's a little bit, <laughs> just a little bit of the me search that went into this book. And, and I think, you know, there's also a lot in there, you know, this is uh, about habit and there's a lot in there about the different control systems that drive our behaviors and the implicit, more automatic uh, control systems versus the explicit um, effortful control systems. And I think there's a lot, I think you're going to help us to understand a lot of that dynamic dance between when we should be trying to use these, what I call the writer in the brain, the sort of explicit um, control systems to guide our more automatic processes. And when we should just let go of the reins a little bit and let the more automatic things, what I call the horse control systems, take the lead. Like it's certainly not always the case that more control is better. So I think it's fair to say that we could probably do about an hour on the subject of each chapter in <laughs> your book and then another hour on the uh, tangents that those uh, <laughs> topics inspire. But uh, you've been really generous with your time today, so I'm not going to uh, <laughs> pursue all of that. But I, I want to kind of just, uh, yeah, um, maybe since we talked so much at the beginning about how neuroscience and psychology have fallen, they haven't focused as much on this area. Um, I think we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but what would you like to see from the field of in, uh, individual differences, neuroscience over the next, like let's say 20 years or whatever, what is the kind of, how would, how would you like to see that progress? What would you, what would you like to see that look like? Um, to feel like, okay, we've really, really turned the ship around and, and, and done um, you know, uh, a lot of the stuff that I would, I'd like to see on this. What would that look like for you? To put it simply, we need to start parameterizing the mind and brain, meaning like, let's start talking about that multivariable cloud. Is it a hundred spaces? Is it 16 spaces? I think we need to understand more about person environment interactions. I think our models of psychology have largely held the person constant and changed the environment to see how this moves the person around in the world. So we need we need some appreciation of what are the key variables that define the human brain and the way that it gives rise to the human mind. So starting to parameterize that space and then also having the math and the models for figuring out how we consider those variables in combination because just like a brain can't be evaluated without its context, I think we're doing too much of evaluating these individual axes without considering the other axes, the environment that is the brain and its other parameters um, and how they interact. For instance, dopamine and serotonin, there's a whole bunch in, in the book about, you know, high dopamine or high serotonin or low dopamine or low serotonin 
don't mean the same thing unless you consider what else is going on around you in the sort of neural cocktail. So I think we need By the to- way, I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, wait, that actually, oh, wow. Like that, that chapter, whoa, that's a really good one. So just flagging that for anyone who's listened this far <laughs> into the conversation, go buy the book and then read all about that. Yeah, recently it's become so newsworthy that people are saying serotonin doesn't cause- depression and we're treating everyone with serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And I was like, does it not, not cause depression in anyone or does it just not cause depression in everyone? Yeah. I think it's, again, it's an area to be explored. So yeah, this is what I would like more acknowledgement that individual differences matter. And let's start to come to agreement on what axes we need to, to measure, to characterize the person. Well, in the next few years of neuroscience, I'd love to see more of that. And in the next few minutes, I'd love to see you go take care of your horses. So uh, (laughs) thank you for taking the time to talk today. This was a uh, pleasure as expected. Uh, Still uh, sufficiently high level of of unexpected pleasure to elicit plenty of dopamine. Um, (laughs) But uh, but yes, uh, Chantal, thanks very much for taking the time to talk today. Cody, thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to see where you and I are at in the next three years when we reconnect or two or whenever our paths cross again. I know I'm going to see you in real life soon, but when we meet in the next podcast space, where will our brains be? I really look forward to that as well. All right. See ya. (laughs) Thank you. That was my conversation with Chantel Pratt. Thanks for listening. This interview was recorded in August 2022, even though it's being released as my first episode of 2023. At the time, I knew I wanted to have a conversation with Chantel about her new book, my podcast. I just didn't know what my podcast was going to be. And for the record, uh, we did see each other in real life very shortly after this. At the end of summer, I went back to Seattle for a few months, where I'm from and where Chantel lives. We had coffee. It was great. I think there's no better reminder of the power of Chantel's work on individual differences than getting the chance to interact with her. She's such a unique and wonderful person. When we talked the first time, she'd just sold her book proposal and was contracted to write it. It was the first podcast she'd ever done. I instantly understood her appeal as a human being. I'm glad now that the book is getting wider coverage, everyone else is able to as well. If you enjoy this show, please consider giving it a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. As always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of The Meeting Lab Podcast. Thank you.